Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. In this week's episode, we talk with Margaret Walls, a senior fellow here at Resources for the Future. I'll be talking with Margaret about her work on the economics of national parks and other public lands, including ways to address ongoing funding needs and overcrowding. We'll also discuss some of the recent concerns related to national parks and the government shutdown. Stay with us. Margaret, thank you so much for joining me. It's really great to have some in-house expertise on this topic, and I'm very glad we were able to schedule some time with you. So we'd like to open the podcast with a get-to-know-you question or two. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in working on the economics of national parks? And since I know that you personally have visited many national parks, let me ask, which is your favorite park and why? Thanks, Kristen. Um, Well, I got started on this work, I think, in about 2008, 2009. And thinking back on this, when we had a group called the Outdoor Resources Review Group, which was a bipartisan commission that had two honorary co-chairs from the Senate, Lamar Alexander and Jeff Bingaman, who's no longer a senator. And it was a commission that was put together to sort of look at issues in outdoor recreation, public lands, conservation, and had some really notable, wonderful people on the commission. And RFF did the companion research study. So this was about a year and a half effort. All of these documents are still really great reports that are on our website. But that is where I first started working on it from a research perspective. We helped that commission out in looking at a lot of funding issues, recreation demand, and a whole host of other things. So that's where it started. And National Parks was part of that. It wasn't the only thing. There was many other issues as well. My favorite national park uh, is probably Zion in Utah. Good choice. Yeah, good (laughs) choice. That's a popular park with a lot of people. In Mm -hmm. fact, that's one of the ones that's having a lot of the overcrowding issues, which is something you read a lot about. The Mm -hmm. parks are, people like to say, love to death, a lot of them. And Zion is a very popular park. It's a beautiful park, as are most of the ones in Utah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. So um, so let's start with some basic details about the park system. So tell me a little bit about how the U.S. national park system is normally funded. And is that different from other designations, such as national forests or national monuments? No, not really. Funding comes mainly from discretionary appropriations from Congress. And that's the same for the other land management agencies. It's the same for the Forest Service, which is in the Department of Agriculture, It's the same for the other interior agencies. The National Park Service is in the Department of Interior, as is the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Bureau of Land Management, and they all get appropriations from Congress. So in the most recent year, um, I want to make a distinction here because there's what's called discretionary appropriation. So in the most recent year, the National Park Service got about $3.5 billion in discretionary appropriations about three quarters of that money goes for park operations. So the rest of it goes to some grant programs and different things. But actually operating and maintaining the parks is about $2.5 billion in appropriations. So annual appropriations from Congress were about $3.5 billion in the most recent year. It's important to note that that's less in inflation adjusted terms than it was 10 years ago. So the Park Service has gotten less money over the last decade in real dollars, and that's led to a growing deferred maintenance backlog in the system and just revenues that don't meet costs. 
There's a little bit of additional what are called mandatory appropriations, and that was about $700 million in the most recent year, and that money is money that comes from fees. So this is money that the parks are, and there's a reason why I'm bringing this up, but the park service charges entrance fees at some parks. They charge fees if you're going to camp. They charge fees for lodging, a host of other things. There's a law that says that up to 80% of those fee revenues stay at the unit where they're collected to be used for specific things. So that in the most recent year was an additional about $700 million for the park service on top of that $3.5 billion. Okay, so that means that if they're raised in Yellowstone, they stay in Yellowstone and the same for other jurisdictions? That's correct. Okay. Not every penny, but most of it. But 80% or so. Mm -hmm. Very good to know. Okay. So what changes has the Trump administration recently proposed related to national parks, either how they're funded, how they're used, how those revenue streams might be augmented or changed over time? Right. Well, the biggest thing and the most controversial was in the fall of 2017 when they proposed raising the entrance fees at about 17 parks. Now, not all the parks do charge entrance fees, but of the ones that do, they propose to raise fees from about $30 to about $70. So that's a Is that per car? That's per, per car. Okay. That's per car and it's usually at most parks at least you can stay for a week. Okay. Okay, so for that fee. So that was very controversial mm-hmm. and most people did not like that idea. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of pushback. They took comments and there was pushback. So in the end, what they ended up doing was they did raise fees, but only by about $5. Okay. And they raised them across the board. So what they had proposed was let's do this big increase at these 17 parks only in the peak season when Mm -hmm. there's most of the visitors. Um, Instead, what they ended up with was this $5 increase across the board at all the parks that charge. They've also um, been considering a few other things. So the main thing that's on the table at the moment to raise money for the parks is a bill in Congress that I believe has made its way out of the House Natural Resources Committee, but I'm not completely sure about that. Um, And this is supported by the Trump administration. They also proposed um, something like this, and that's to take energy revenues from public lands and dedicate 50% of that money that's not already dedicated to something else and put it to a fund that will be used for the parks to clear what's called their deferred maintenance backlog. Mm. So this is another thing that gets written about a lot. And this is the money that the park service feels it needs in order to repair all the problems that it has. Mm -hmm. And that's $11.6 billion at the moment. Wow. That backlog. So Mm -hmm. this is a proposal that's on the table that seems to have some support Mm -hmm. And um, that would go on for about a four-year period, I think, according to the bill that's in Congress right now. And I think the administration supports that idea. But mm-hmm. that's, those are the two things I know about, increasing fee revenues and perhaps using the energy revenues. That's very interesting. And, and we're starting to reference some current events. As I imagine our listeners know, the national parks have been open uh, during this particular government shutdown, unlike in some of the past government shutdowns. But they, of course, have been working with a skeleton staff and on a, on a limited budget during the shutdown, which, of course, puts strains on capacity to meet visitor needs. So can you say a little bit more about why the idea of uh, dipping into entrance fees for that sort of ongoing visitor interaction would be controversial? I'm not sure why it's controversial, but my understanding is 
Now that's the 700 million that I mentioned from mm -hmm. the, the fee revenues that stay at the parks. Um, and the law that established that use of those fees, which is called the Federal Lands Recreation Enhancement Act, say that the revenues have to be used to enhance visitor services and facilities. And people are saying that it might not be legal to take those monies, that money that's been raised from the fees, and use it to basically operate the parks during the shutdown. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know if that's legal or not. But as I understand it, that's the criticism and the controversy, is that that's not the appropriate use of those revenues. Mm -hmm. I think it is an interpretation of what you think an enhancement of visitor services is. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. But that's the problem that they see. And the last time there was a shutdown, my understanding is they considered doing this mm -hmm. and then backed off from it. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. That's helpful context. Thanks, because it does seem that using visitor fees to actually allow visitors to continue to engage with the park would, in fact, be an enhancement. But I guess exactly yeah. as you noted, it very much depends on the definitions included in the legislation. So. Mm -hmm. yep. So you've done a lot of creative thinking about ways to fund parks. We've obviously talked about how they're funded now, some of the opportunities that are being explored by the administration. But since that initial work back in 2008, um, what have you been thinking about in terms of creative ways to perhaps enhance the revenue available to our national park system? I think there's a lot of things to think about here. One thing I want to say first is that this idea that's in Congress right now to use the energy revenues is not a long-term solution. So their notion is to take this money, create a fund for four years to clear the backlog. Mm -hmm. That's fine, but the backlog exists because annual appropriations are not sufficient to operate the parks. With how much it costs to operate the park and mm -hmm. maintain the park, to have the employees that work at the park, to maintain the trails, to maintain all that infrastructure, they're not raising enough money to do that. Mm -hmm. And so this backlog develops because of that, because things just get deferred. You don't have the money, you don't do it. And if we don't solve that ongoing annual revenue problem, and it could be an annual cost problem too. Perhaps we're spending too much money. Perhaps the park service is inefficient in how it operates the parks. Mm -hmm. And there could be some of that. I'm sure there's some of that. But I don't think anybody disagrees that there's not enough revenue. Mm -hmm. So we have to think about how we're going to have ongoing annual revenue sufficient to operate what we consider to be probably the premier national park system mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's a really difficult question. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things I've thought about. So the first and obvious one is back to the fees. So do we want people to pay more money to get in the parks? Mm -hmm. This is pretty unpopular. And it's unpopular in the National Park Service because access to these parks for everybody mm -hmm. is what we want. Are some of the concerns there about regressivity and that just by raising the fees, you make them that much less accessible to low-income households? That's absolutely what it is. I think there's a big concern that, you know, if you have a $100 fee to get in the park, who are you going to get to come? Mm-hmm. A counter argument there is that it costs a lot to get to most of these parks. Mm -hmm. So the big bulk of the money that you pay if you visit a park is probably getting there, taking vacation, driving, flying, staying in a hotel, not really the entrance fee mm -hmm. to the park itself. 
Nonetheless, I'm very sympathetic to the notion of not putting the fees too high. Mm-hmm. My own view about fees, entrance fees, is that we need to be creative and think about some differential fees. A lot of the parks are overcrowded in the peak season. They probably need higher fees during that season. Mm-hmm. Parks are crowded on the weekends. Perhaps we need daily differential pricing. Like going to the movies, right? Where you pay a little bit more when you go at (laughs) prime time. Just like the movies and a lot of other things. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. The other thing about fees is we can differentiate in other ways. We have a lot of international visitors to our parks. They pay the same amount as American citizens. This is not the case in many other countries. Uh, an international visitor to parks in Kenya and Tanzania and mm-hmm. India, they all pay more than mm-hmm. uh, the citizens of those countries. It's something we don't do here, mm-hmm. but it's a thought. There are other creative ways to think about fees, and I think what's really needed is a better understanding of use and demand and how changes to the fees might help. Some experiments to try and see mm-hmm. um, how things work, I think, is mm-hmm. in order. The other idea for raising money for the parks comes under the heading of, should we have some kind of dedicated tax or fee program that raises money on an annual basis? Mm -hmm. So right now, it's just general appropriations from Congress. Should there be some dedicated fund? Mm -hmm. So I will point out that for decades, we've had fishing and hunting licenses and a federal tax on firearms and ammunition, all of which that money goes to fund wildlife conservation Mm -hmm. in a very unique and very productive partnership with states. So there is a precedent here for this kind of thing. Um, The problem is that that money from the licensing side is declining because the number of hunters and fishermen is declining. Mm -hmm. In its place, perhaps, it seems to be our more general recreationists, people sightseeing, people hiking, lots of other kinds of recreation, none of which pays a fee Mm -hmm. or has a license. So this has been on the table before. It was called the backpack tax at one point. Hmm. Some people refer to it as the gear tax, but the notion here is we collect some money on some sort of gear that's used in the outdoors, and we take that money and put it to public lands, perhaps, mm-hmm. for the national parks. And I imagine those other uses of the national park system and other public lands are, in fact, increasing, even if the hunting and fishing licenses might be decreasing. Is that is that right? I think that's right. Okay. Yeah, um, most of the evidence suggests that. Okay. And in fact, you know, there's this new term called the outdoor recreation economy, which by most accounts is growing. And uh, there are about, I think, 11 states now that have created a new office of outdoor recreation, state office, to sort Mm. of promote outdoor recreation in their states. Mm -hmm. And most of that's centered on their public lands, Mm -hmm. like their national parks. So the notion that some of that money from that growing economy goes back to support our public lands might not be a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say that the recreation industry is very opposed to any idea of a gear tax. Mm -hmm. But we need to discuss this more, I think. Something like this needs to be on the table. I want to make one point, though, about these sort of dedicated taxes like this. Any time that we have had any sort of dedicated or earmarked tax for anything, be it outdoor recreation or anything else, general revenues will fall. They always fall. 
So we need to be prepared for that if we are creative enough and can get over the political hump to create some new source of revenue beware, Congress will probably cut back Mm -hmm. general appropriations. It's just the way it works. Yeah. The states have been interesting laboratories here. Those states all have their own park system. They do conservation. They have a wide array of funding things that they do. Mm -hmm. We can learn from them. So I think there's some some good ideas that have been implemented in the states. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And I'm sure very, very much of interest to policymakers in those states as well. So that's something I would encourage our listeners to keep an eye out for on RFF's website in the next few months. And that reminds me, you're actually working on a study, if I'm not mistaken, about how outdoor recreation contributes to local economies. Is that right? Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. Um, this isn't national park focused, at least not yet. We may look at national parks, but there's been an interest in whether um, protecting lands as a park or as a national monument or other protective status actually adds to local economies, makes helps them grow, or hurts them by cutting off some other opportunities. So we're looking in particular at how jobs and the number of establishments might be growing or shrinking in areas near national monuments after they get designated. So our study is focused on the eight states and the Mountain West, and it is focused right now on national monuments that have been created between 1990 and 2015, Mm -hmm. using some very unique data and some pretty sophisticated um, statistical methods. We're trying to tease out whether or not when a monument is designated in an area, it actually adds to the number of jobs that exist in that area. So we're fairly far along. We should have some results, you know, at this spring from that study. But I think it's getting at this question about what is really happening to local communities and their economies in particular when we protect public lands. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of public lands, especially in the West, Not all of them are protected for recreation and conservation purposes. Some of them are open to drilling, forestry, and those kinds of activities. Um, When we protect them, we pretty much shut that activity down. Mm -hmm. If it was there at the time of designation, it can continue, but no new leasing Mm -hmm. um, happens. So we're trying to see what are the net economic effects from that. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. This is really, really interesting and timely stuff. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us a little bit more about it. So I want to just close the podcast with our regular ending feature, which we call Top of the Stack. And we ask our guests to recommend something that they've read or watched or listened to, like a podcast, uh, that they might particularly recommend to our listeners who are interested in energy environment issues. And in this case, if you do have a another national park or site that you want to recommend, of course, that would be very welcome as well. But what's on the top of the stack for you, Margaret? Well, I'm an avid reader of books on the history of our public lands, on uh, nature writing, of all that kind of thing. So... Looking back on the last couple of years, I do have a couple of really good recommendations for anybody who's a lover of national parks. Please read The Hour of Land by Terry Tempest Williams. I don't know if you know Terry Tempest Williams. I do not. She's a Utah Mormon woman who writes amazing books about nature. And she has a really terrific book about her experiences in the national parks. I love this book. I actually listened to it on tape. So there's your (laughs) podcast recommendation in a way. You can Um, read and listen. Yeah. Yeah. The full title is The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks. Hmm. I loved that book. 
And a second one I highly recommend is called All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and the American West. Mm -hmm. And that's a book by David Gessner that talks about, well, first people need to read Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner if you haven't (laughs) done that. Um, And then he walks through sort of the creation of wilderness and the tensions between these two men who are highly influential. Mm -hmm. Um, And then last thing I would say is don't just visit the national parks. Um, I want to remind people about national monuments, Mm -hmm. which have also been under the gun in the last couple of years. But um, one of my very favorite places is Grand Staircase Escalante in Mm -hmm. Utah, which is another beautiful public land that Mm -hmm. we all own and should go visit. That's great, Margaret. Thank you for those recommendations and for joining us. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.